1: Now, you're making a point, and this is where we're going next, uh, about, well, in first-century Israel this is not going to be an issue that comes up. But if we go to the larger Greco-Roman world and we think about what's going on in, in uh, Hellenistic culture around which uh, the Christians, who of course early on were mainly Jewish. Um, where they're coming from, what is, what is the situation that we're dealing with uh, in the larger Greco-Roman culture? Well, generally they would have viewed things <coughs> quite
2: a bit different. I think that's one of the problems that we actually have here. They would not have defined things as heterosexual, homosexual, etc. Uh, they would have seen it much more as a, who the active person is, who the passive person is in these types of things, and only certain people could be in those particular roles. For example, uh, and this would have differed in, uh, to some extent in various places, but uh, <coughs> first century, a Roman, a Roman male citizen could only be an active individual, whereas a, um, a woman <coughs> really could only be a passive individual. And for them to break those molds or break those uh, roles, that would be uh, very difficult and challenge really the uh, whole structure of their society. In addition to women, you could have slaves, both male and women, who, men and women that could be... Um, Uh, Passive, and uh, most prominently, and probably most uh, difficult for us to really wrestle with is it could often be boys, as well. Usually, they wouldn't be uh, citizens, especially in Rome. You would not have had that, Uh, but uh, would not have been uncommon. It would have been quite uh, uh, expected in many cases. And if go ahead,
1: so this is going on and going on uh, more or less regularly in certain pockets of the society. Is that a fair fair way to say it?
2: You would, you'd pretty much. if you're looking at a guy who's got a home with an attractive adolescent slave boy, chances are uh, it would be likely, at least in your mind, that uh, they were having some type of relation uh, in that respect. This does actually intersect the Gospels a little bit okay. and it has been brought up. Um, the centurion mm-hmm. who comes to Jesus with uh, his slave to be healed, uh, it is quite possible that there would have been a relationship there. And because Jesus does not condemn any activities they're doing, it's sometimes suggested that he's actually affirming uh, one of these same-sex relationships. Uh, I think that misses a bit of the point of what's actually going on. But you actually see this argued hmm. uh, on occasions, and uh, uh, hmm. Jesus is more interested in what he's actually doing, more interested in the personality, of the boy and girl. I remember the the welfare of the uh, servant, etc.
1: Interesting. Uh, so what we have in Hellenistic culture is not so much these kinds of uh, hardline categories about what um, what can be done, because almost anything's being done in some ways. Is that is, certain things aren't?
2: Yeah. Um, uh, again, I guess behind closed doors and nobody knows about, I'm sure everything can be be going on. But uh, this stuff is interrelated with uh, you know the structure of society, mm-hmm. with. Um, you know honor and shame culture mm-hmm. uh, with um, the role of women and really uh, a really low view of women in, in light of what we uh, think of today uh, in many cases the patronage system um, this idea of controlling individuals it's all is tied up it's not a separate category of so sexuality a, so the
1: status is more important yes. and function is more important than than gender per se is right. that be fair to say yes yeah okay now Having said that, and this is I've set this up on purpose as talking about what's going on with Jew, Jews and Judaism and what's going on in, in Rome and in the Greco-Roman world, we come to Romans 1, which is obviously probably the most discussed text um, in the New Testament on this topic, uh, a significant text in which Paul is engaged in, in why the nations uh, are in need of the gospel in a very generic kind of way, he'll turn his attention to the Jews in chapter 2. Uh, but in, in, in chapter 1 verse 18 down to the end of the chapter in verse uh, 32 we're in the midst of a discussion about about the, the state of the world among the nations and how they have exchanged the Creator for the creature and are engaged in a life and in, in, in elements of lifestyle that show their distance from, from God. It, it's very, very important that in all of these discussions that we are having, the presence of God and the honoring of God are very much in the background of all these passages. We, we, we do not live in a, in a secularized world in which God is an optional player. Uh, he's very much present, and how we interact with him is a part of this discussion. Um, uh, Jay, why don't you take us through these key verses in Romans, and let me let me get them before people before we uh, before we start. I'm going to get this on the iPad so I can read it, and then we'll we'll discuss these these verses. I'm going to start in verse uh, 24. Uh, Therefore, God gave them over in the desires of their hearts to impurity, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creation, rather than the Creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, verse 26, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged the natural relations for unnatural ones, and likewise the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed in their passions for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what should not be done. They were filled with every kind of unrighteousness, wickedness, covetousness, malice. They are rife with envy, murder, strife, deceit, hostility. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, contrivers of all sorts of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, covenant breakers, heartless, and ruthless. And we've gone on to read because the point here is the entirety of the condition of sin in the nations. And then, verse 32 Although they fully know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things, Deserve to die; they not only do them but also approve of those who practice them. So that's our passage. Um, what does it tell us? Um, well, the, the the final
3: section that you mentioned there tells you this is pretty serious because they're worthy of death. Mm-hmm. And so this is not a, a casual uh, uh, offense or set of problems. So it's very serious, and in some way. Um, mimics what was going on in the Old Testament where well, mm-hmm. you had the capital offense. Um, but probably more to the point is up around verse 26. Um, and here it looks like uh, a divine judgment mm-hmm. for idolatry. In verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creation, the creature rather than creator, and therefore, as a consequence or for this reason, God gives them over um, to um, these degrading passions, exchanging, uh, norm, if, if I can use the word, normal heterosexual relations for same-sex relations. So this is a part of the divine judgment
1: for idolatry. So, this becomes an illustration of one sin among many sins that leave the nations culpable before God. Exactly. And so, when we come to verse 32. And we say those who practice such things deserve to die. It, it wouldn't be fair to say we're only talking about what's discussed in verse 27. We would be saying no. Paul's condemnation extends to the entirety of the list because, in part, he's building the case on why everyone needs to have their relationship with God restored, as opposed to only certain people who engage in certain particular practices. Would that be fair? I think it would be fair.
3: You know. Um, he does, it's a little expansive there when he talks about same sex relations, but I'm not sure one could probably make a, a big distinction in terms of one's ultimate culpability before God uh, in terms of the other sins, you know, malice and gossip and slanders and haters. Those are all make one culpable. Uh, but he, you know, so I'm not sure you can list these um, sins as one more grievous than the other. They're all uh, damning, if you will. Uh, So, but anyway, the penalty I think would uh, extend—that is, of deserving death—would include the whole
1: list, all the way from verses 24. And we're talking about a backdrop in which the deserving of death talks about uh, being spiritually separated from God and having the need now to come into a restored life, which, of course, the rest of the book is about, Mm -hmm. in talking Mm -hmm. about how. What Jesus has done and the sacrifice He's done covers all these sins uh, can can remove the guilt and the culpability before God and can bring us into a state where we're reconciled with God. Would that be exactly fair? right? Exactly right. Now, let's go back up to the passage in question and say, are there are there any limitations on what's going on here or um, uh, is uh, uh, well, let me let me ask one previous question. Is there any doubt about what's being described here?
3: I, from, I, I don't think so. I think there is a, 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 some sort of a same-sex relation. Uh, occasionally there's some talk that uh, what Paul has in mind is some sort of, of, a, of a degrading or exploitive relationship, uh, particularly with men, with boys, and that's what he's opposed to. But then when he talks about women with women, uh, he seems to be, uh, it's a broader category. It's mm-hmm. not just an exploitive relationship with an adult male and an underage boy. Mm-hmm. It would certainly include that, but I don't think you can restrict it to that. As soon as he starts talking, to, he brings women in, you can see that the, his purview is a little wider than just exploitive
2: relationships.
1: And, and the, Go ahead.
2: It is worth pointing out that. Uh, Women and women would have been a big taboo, generally speaking now again, it probably happened, and uh, there's some things out there, but generally the sources don't talk uh, as much about it in a and not definitely not in the same way as you have it with men with uh, adolescents and younger uh, boys but uh, so that would be right there something that uh, probably most everyone would have agreed with at that point. Um, mm-hmm. maybe that's a way of him getting into the uh, to the argument, one of those things that People will accept.
1: So he's starting with, in in some ways, the most grievous category, or the one that everyone accepts as a taboo, and then works his way to places that that might be more culturally debated. Yeah, because women with women would mean somebody would have to take a role of a man. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and I, you know, I look at this passage in verse twenty-six where it says, "For the women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones." That kind of removes any doubt about what it is that we're talking about. Is that fair to say? In terms, of, uh, in, in, in terms of we're dealing with, uh, with same-sex scenarios. Yes, but I will say that uh, some of the
2: arguments that are brought up mm-hmm. about this would be, well, what is natural? Mm-hmm. And then it goes to this idea, um, yes, it's true. It's natural for you who are attracted to women uh, to be attracted to women. It would be unnatural for you to be attracted to a man. But for somebody who is actually a male attracted to other males, that's perfectly natural. And then, uh, with that type of a situation, it would actually be unnatural for a guy with desires for other men to actually try to, uh, you know, have relations with a woman. In that case, I just find that's a little bit too complicated for a, a first-century audience. Mm-hmm. And and if which I does th- seem to be dealing can with asks the question does mm-hmm. in the, in those discussions, and I'm going to be very delicate here, um, does physical design? Anatomical design enter into that discussion in terms of what's natural and what isn't. To some extent, yes, but it's actually quite fascinating because, uh, and it's rather complicated too. Uh, We can make a distinction between sexuality, Mm -hmm. which is my desire for a specific person, and then gender identity, which is what I choose to be. So, foreseeably, um, I was going to say you, but let's just say uh, (laughs) um, a, a particular man. Could identify himself gender-wise as female, and that particular man may have, uh, if he's attracted to women, he is actually expressing lesbian desires. And so, it's very complicated. Like, I say, I just can't impose that type of a system upon uh, what you're saying the is. World.
1: Just to be clear, is what you're saying is is the way this conversation comes across in modern conversations yes. about the situation has more, it's working with more categories and more ways to think about it from a psychological yeah. point of view, et cetera. And to think that that would be something that would enter into the mind of someone who's writing in the first century who's writing about these things is unlikely. In, in yeah. your there's thinking. some philosophical discourse going on right, with right. the way
2: people were created and split apart and, and these desires actually happening. But again, you know, for that on a on a more common level would to me seem very difficult would to sustain. It,
1: would it be fair to say that in the ancient world uh, – the, the, the generalization, but we'll go for it and see what happens um, – would it be fair to say that the, generally speaking ancients thought more concretely about some of these issues in the sense of the way in which we are physically designed uh, is designed to be a picture of the way we're to think about the creation? Uh, yeah, as long as we keep it in that
2: context that they aren't working off our paradigm. Right. For them, the active and passive is what's important. Mm-hmm. The roles are what's p- important. Mm-hmm. The uh, you know as a, that's uh, but again, concrete may seem to imply they weren't uh, into as much abstract thought. But the way this is worded, mm-hmm. um, you know, women with women, mm-hmm. men with men, uh, they might not have been thinking specifically the acts as in the forefront. Maybe they were, but they also would have been thinking, well, women with women. That breaks social convention, mm-hmm. and uh, so if that's what you mean by concrete, yes. yeah.
1: Well, actually, no, that's not what I mean by concrete. What I'm suggesting is is a very anatomical design. The idea that says that there are some people who are designed one way, and some people are designed another, and so the uh, I'm trying to yeah. do this delicately. The <laughs> coupling reflects the oneness. <laughs> yeah. Okay, in very concrete terms, that's natural. That's designed.
2: It breaks down though because me as a citizen male mm-hmm. I can only be active mm-hmm. but a male slave
1: can be passive so in other words the function you can think about functioning in a different role but um, one more question then uh, was this scene let's let's take right or wrong out of it but um, and, and put it in a different form was it seen to be a a different kind of relating, if I can say it that way. Would there be a distinction made in what was going on, or would it simply be taken on, on equal moral terms? Again, remembering that we're talking about how Romans think yeah. about this. Well,
2: yeah, definitely. And that's probably worth bringing up because, yeah. on the one hand, you could be, you know, again, hypothetically, and again, I want to make it clear that you were going to talk about Athens four centuries earlier, it would be slightly different, talk uh-huh. about different things, but generally speaking, I'm trying to uh, go um, with a first century Roman idea. Mm-hmm. that. Um, <clears throat> that you would go and uh, as long as you were doing what you functioned and the way you function that was acceptable mm-hmm. and uh kind to think how I would want to word that in another way but um, well let me
1: well, let me take it take it this way but a jewish person looking at that right they, would, would they look at it the same way
2: no and i think paul's using a jewish polemic here
1: uh-huh. he's uh he's talking against about the, the,
3: world. the creator and the creature i yeah. mean i mean there's there's a, there's a, a um, Divine intent here. There, there's a, a Genesis overlay, I think, to what Paul's doing. Or Leviticus overlay, or, yeah. The no. Torah overlay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and when he talks about something being against nature, I think it means, uh, or in line with nature, it's in line with the Creator's intent. Yeah. Uh, Genesis 2 kind of intent. Now, a Roman might say, that I have a uh, underage boy and that he's the passive partner. That's not
2: against nature. Right. The way we define yeah. it, right? Right. But let me um, go back. I think I, yeah. I know what I want to answer now yeah. with that to question. Uh, a person could be, let's say, he's a 20 year old mm-hmm. and he's interested, or maybe a 25 year old interested in young boys or going and and want to say young adolescent type boys. Uh, but that does not preclude that he's going to get married. And have what we would consider relation you know heterosexual relations right. for from here on out, they seem to be able to separate maybe what 's involved in marriage and what they 're going to do and what a good citizen does, and what maybe they do before marriage, et
1: cetera so the point here is, and th- th- or uh, we we have way. spent a lot of time on this on purpose not to not to park here <clears throat> but to really get the cultural elements of what 's going on. This is culturally. Uh, very much a a cross-cultural engagement to a certain degree. You've got something going on in Rome and in Hellenism on the one hand that is culturally constructed one way. You've got something going on in the Jewish world and theologically that's constructed in a different way, Mm -hmm. and you are seeing them run into each other in this passage. Is that – would that be fair to
2: say? Yeah. In fact, I think that's why this is so important. Um, This passage is so important for me. This is the one passage I think that – um <clears throat> Really makes the point mm-hmm. uh, because it 's easy when you 're looking at something and everything's going one particular way in the culture for mm-hmm. somebody to just affirm it and go on it 's mm-hmm. hard to say whether or not there's a critique going on, but in the Roman culture, mm-hmm. you know men with uh, other males was an accepted thing, mm-hmm. so for Paul to actually be drawing upon this he 's not just taking some oh i 've just grown up as a uh, in a, as a heterosexual, if you will, and mm-hmm. I know everything else is wrong like we might do today. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in a culture that was dominated by this act of passive male could could be with males, etc in certain situations. and then he applies this text or a, a Jewish idea to this. And we know Paul is not necessarily opposed to going against Jewish tradition mm-hmm. in many things. that's right uh, but here he does affirm it. So to me this is a strong a strong evidence that uh, what Paul's saying here, uh, one, it's kind of cultural, mm-hmm. at least to a Roman audience, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, gives it, I think, a lot
1: more um, uh, staying power, if you will, in this argument. So your point is, is that by appreciating the openness of the Roman culture and how freewheeling it was, if I can say it this way, it actually makes more of this passage yeah. than if. If it were like um, well this is everyone without thinking and blinking says, oh yeah that's just unnatural yeah and to take an analogy with food if Paul you know came from a Jewish
2: background and he doesn't eat pork mm-hmm. probably uh, and he's has no problem saying we can eat various other things now but if he took a passage and said you know eating pork demonstrates that the uh, you know, the Roman world is corrupt. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it would seem to be that there's something important there because he knows that everybody uh, can go and get poor.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us. Written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more.
1: Well, uh, so just to drive the point home, the point that you're making in the end is is that even though we're dealing with a cultural clash, the point that Paul is making is designed to to be transcultural. That he's dealing yeah. with something that, from the standpoint of God, uh, applies to cultures no matter what. And so this is part of the culpability yeah. that people have because they have this kind of approach to things. Again, yeah, Paul's probably
2: utilizing. Uh, you know, he uses men and women here, uses the adjectives, would we'll probably go back to Genesis mm-hmm. to allude there. He doesn't say husband and wife. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He says male and female. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, that um, should echo in uh, at least some readers' ears of uh, that original creation. Uh,
3: if I can second what Joe said, and I think, I think I, I'll try to. <laughs> um, I don't think Paul defines this idea of functioning according to nature or, or not according to nature culturally. Mm-hmm. He's defining that in terms of uh, the Old Testament, in terms of Genesis. That that determines what's contrary to nature and, uh, and uh, with nature. It's
1: so according to creation, if yes. you want to think of it that way.
3: A- yes. A- and he also doesn't define it, which I think we do more commonly today, psychologically. Mm-hmm. Psychologically, I am uh, a, w- a woman caught in a man's body mm. or something. Uh, I don't think Paul's defining functioning naturally in terms of psychological terms Mm -hmm. where we might say well it's against my nature to play the role of a male Mm -hmm. because I'm really a woman. I need – it's against nature for me to do that. I don't think Paul's thinking in terms of psychological categories. He's thinking in terms of creative categories and God's original intent. Uh, not in terms of how I view my makeup or my gender identity or sexual identity.
1: Okay, that uh, I think we've we've uh, worked our way through that passage. Let's go to uh, the others. I'm going to pair a couple of passages because we're running long on time. Um, and uh, the two passages I want to pair are First Corinthians six nine. And then uh, First Timothy one ten. what these two passages share is they both uh, uh, discuss issues in relationship to the presentation of vice lists of one kind or another. So I think we can pair them together and, and, and move in this kind of a way. Um, I would say after the Romans passage, the second most cited text that we get in this discussion out of the New Testament is this 1 Corinthians 6, 9 text. Um, again I will read it um, uh, out of the Net Bible and uh, starting. I will just read with verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral idolaters, adulterers, passive – and I'm going to I'm, I'm going to pull the word homosexual here. A passive It says homosexual partners, but passive partners and practicing partners, I'll read it that way, at um, uh, uh, the active partner, uh, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, the verbally abusive, the swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you once lived this way, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, and then it goes on. Now we've got, again, a vice list. I, I think it's fascinating that we always find this discussion not in isolation but always tied to other conversations about other kinds of sin. Um, uh, and, and, uh, and what we have here are, are two terms that I think we're going to have to talk about, uh, malakoy and uh, uh So we've got two words here, one of which translates, I want to be very literal, soft if you want to think of it that way, and the other of which literally is is the comb- combination of two words, uh, "male" and bed, <laughs> okay, um, just to show you the difference between the terms. I actually think that in this case, thinking literally about what the word pictures are helps you to understand Sort of what the words are getting at. Um, so, in one case, uh, in the picture of the soft, I've got uh, uh, what what is translated oftentimes as passive, the person who is not the active player, and in the other case, we've got the active or the dominant figure that's being uh, described. So. With that as the background, what does this passage have to tell us? And you teach 1 Corinthians, Jay, so uh, you get this one, since okay. we picked on Joe last time. And, uh, um, and tell us what's going on here.
3: Well, I, the first thing I'd want to mention is what you'd said. You know, you have another list, mm-hmm. and interesting, I think for the third time in the list, you get a very severe punishment or, mm-hmm. th- or threat. You will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Or is it the kingdom of, of God? Yeah, but but at any rate, the point still stands. I mean, violators. This is very serious. Uh, and probably the second thing I, I would say is, uh, this is in a list. Oftentimes, the discussion goes a, about inclination or uh, psychological makeup. This is; these terms are in a, a passage where there's a lot of behavioral, a, active sort of. Phenomena, you know, you're a drunkard, you're a coveter, you're a viler, you're a swindler. It's in a list of uh, of actions. So I'm not sure
1: Paul's really talking about some sort of psychological makeup
3: of individuals. Yeah,
1: I I think it's interesting that the word that comes before the two terms that we're discussing is the word adulterer. Hmm. And uh, I know that in some of the blog exchanges I've had on this issue with people who are Defending same sex lifestyle in one way or another, um, and they're making the psychological point well, I'm made this way, or I have an inclination in this direction. You know, I like to make the point well, I may have an inclination that I'm cap- quite capable of thinking about having sex with other women. You know, I may have that inclination, but that doesn't mean I act on that inclination, and that I, or, or that that gives me the right to act on that inclination. And so, uh, this is a case where I think the nature of the list may help us think through what it is that's being dealt with in the scripture. And what's being dealt with in the scripture is. Um, Playing out on the inclination or acting on the inclination as opposed to simply being in a certain place emotionally or having a certain kind of proclivity. I think many of us have proclivity. I mean, I think of Jesus's passage on the Sermon on the Mount where he talks about, you know, it's not adultery, it's lust that's the problem. Well, that is. Nails most of us, and so um, uh, and what he's showing is the standard that that says the heart that is really aligned uh, with God does so in a way that um, that doesn't just simply say, Well, I have this inclination, so I have the right or the entitlement to go there, but it thinks through uh, how I deal with inclinations that I may that I may have. Uh, Joe, you have anything you want to add to the 1 Corinthians 6 passage? Well, I, um,
2: again, I think these are real difficult to pinpoint what <coughs> terms mean in these types of lists. Romans 1 is so much easier because there's description going on. Uh, but again, I think uh, sometimes our translations will seem like they're coming from, a, again, our modern perspective of uh, hetero-homosexual breakup. And they'll see uh, passive with the molekoi, passive receptors, to, mm-hmm. and then uh, active on the, uh, the other term uh, and I just want to add a couple things. One I think from the ancient perspective it might be a little easier to see the soft translation. I like the effeminate uh, translation because the Romans were very, very opposed to men who would uh, do things that look like a woman. Mm-hmm. That was very negative and of course that would include taking a passive role uh, but it was more uh, than that.
1: So this is a broad term, is your point? Right, right. Yeah, just like when we, I, the analogy I like to use here is the term "porné" is a broad term for sexual immorality. It can cover a lot of things, yep. but it covers adultery. Yep. I mean, but it's more than that. Yeah.
3: Uh, now, if you like contrast, I uh, might push back on you okay. a little bit. Okay. Well, let me
1: finish. Yeah. But All right, I okay. also like this uh,
2: translation a little bit better too, because if you say "passive homosexual," um, again, "passive same-sex partner." You're primarily talking about, you know, younger people, younger boys. When I again, boys, um, you know, about the start of adolescence to a little bit of you know up to a start of puberty. You're up certainly to adolescence. including that right. group, and that would be the, that would be the what you'd be thinking of. I would think mm-hmm. normally when you're talking about this group of individuals, and I just don't see uh, in that case uh, as as well as them really being able. Um, to have much to do in some of these cases, mm. especially if they were, you know, a slave boy or something like that, and so uh, a category that is primarily directed at a uh, powerless group, I find to be uh, problematic. And again, I think from a from the perspective of um, the ancient world, that would have been a little bit more understandable because they aren't making uh, both those distinctions uh, like we are.
1: Jay,
3: well, I, I'm yeah, I, I appreciate that. I'm. Just in, in being paired with uh, the, the two terms, the, the Malacosta the soft, and the arsenokites, the, the man better, uh, I, mean, I tend to think them, uh, it, it's likely in my thinking they're being used together. They're paired? They're paired. Mm-hmm. Uh, now perhaps not, but yeah. uh, I kind of favor some of the recent translations that will Will not define those two terms individually, but will translate them something like "men who have sex with men," and, and they're not isolating the two terms; uh, they're the, rendering both of them that, to, with that phrase. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. Again, I see this as a natural homosexual-heterosexual distinction um, way to translate it, yeah. because we're coming from that's the way we're viewing this thing, and right. so yeah, naturally, how do these fit? And then it comes, in. again, I don't see that as uh, valid uh, in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. And I will note that that other word is really difficult to translate, men-batters. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, uh, I just want to clarify because it's easy for us to be accused of an etymological fallacy or something yes, here, because very much so. uh, you know, you know, well, I guess uh, something like you know. Understand it has nothing to do with under. Has nothing to do with stand. Butterfly. And uh, but in this case, I, I would like to defend the uh, the translation. Although uh, it might be intentionally ambiguous that it we don't know if it's active or passive by men betters. We assume it's active, but it could be both ways. It's not a very commonly used word. Uh, it first appears around this time. Some may even think it first appears by Paul. Yeah. But uh, um, there's you know again without with limited data we don't know. But in light of that limited data and in light of these types of terms, like man and bed, bringing them together, I do think there is some justification for doing this type of thing methodologically, uh, despite the fact that I think we need to be
1: careful and sensitive to issues of uh, yeah. uh, Exegetical fallacies, if you will. I think it's interesting to note that the Net Bible, in in translating this in particular, has managed to put notes for each one of these terms. (laughs) So uh, it it shows you um, the nature of the issue. I think that it's important, again, to put this in the context of the larger point. This is part of a larger vice list in which many things are being mentioned, uh, and um, all of them. Uh, Are are uh, are are acts that are being sanctioned and critiqued and rebuked by Paul in this context,
3: and and given hope for too. And such in verse uh, 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 eleven, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified.
1: Yeah, the whole point is that, again, as we saw in Romans, if we were to have read on in Romans, this can all be overcome and, and, and transformed and, and impacted by what it is that Jesus is able um, to do for us. Okay, let's go to uh, the First Timothy passage, the First Timothy uh, 1, and then we have one more passage after that. Um, so First Timothy 1 and verse 10. Uh, And again, we've got um, uh, our our terms here. Let me get this in context. It says, verse 8, but we know that the law is good if someone uses it legitimately, realizing the law is not intended for a righteous person, but for lawless and rebellious people, for ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers. Um, this has been rendered sexually immoral people uh, the term here and the term here that we've got is a is a, 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 a a, ter- a fused term, if I can say it that way. It, well, sexually immoral people, practicing homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers—in fact, for any who live contrary to sound teaching. So we have the immoral in general to start off, verse ten, and then we have our term coming back that we saw in First Corinthians uh, six nine, the second term of the two that we were talking about earlier when we had the soft, and then whatever we do with the with the male betters to keep it uh, keep the term uh, fairly literal here. Um,
3: uh, and, you know, just if I can jump in real quick, uh-huh. those are the two terms. I mean, those two terms mm-hmm. that have been combined here mm-hmm. are, are the the two terms used in the two Leviticus texts in the Greek, yeah, yeah, and, and but they're separated uh, in Leviticus. I say, of course, Leviticus is written in Hebrew, but when it's translated Translated into into the Septuagint,
1: what we call the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament translation, which is an ancient translation. It
3: uses those two words separately, Mm -hmm. both times. It uses them in Leviticus 18, and then it uses them both again in Leviticus 20, and then in The Corinthians text and then the Timothy text—they're combined. Mm -hmm.
1: They're pulled together. So, and so, your point—I take it—is—is that it it could well be that the term that we're getting here for the actions being described is alluding back to Leviticus 18, uh, and Leviticus 20, almost certainly.
3: This seems to be – Paul likes to <laughs> – Dr. Fenton over there is <laughs> – I'm not saying anything. He's back on but Paul loves this this section of Leviticus, <laughs> and, and he likes to use it, and this uh, – by most people's count, this is the first time this – one particular word's used, and a lot of people propose, and I think with some fairness, that Paul's coined the term here. Coming out of Leviticus, he's – pulled these two terms together and coined a new phrase based on the use and of the And we politics. see
1: him using 1 Corinthians and then we see him using 1 Timothy and, and we won't get into a discussion. It's another podcast on who's the author of 1 Timothy is. So we'll, we'll – because we'll, some people would say, well this isn't Paul, this is the Pauline School or whatever, but uh, we're aware of that. Um, but uh, no, there's no doubt that this is the same term being used in a fairly similar kind of way really in relationship to 1 Corinthians. Whatever you're going to do with 1 Corinthians 6 is likely what you're going to do with, 1, with with First Timothy one, we're in a vice list. We're in the same kind of situation. We're in a law righteousness contrast uh, context, etc. So we're doing much of the same things in the two passages. Fair? Yeah, fair. Definitely. Okay. Uh, one more passage, um, and this is outside of Paul. Now we're in, in Jude. Chapter Seven. I guess it's appropriate to to end up here in in many ways because it takes us uh, by ju- going to Jude. We're going to go back to Sodom at the same time, so we, we get to we get to kind of circle the wagons uh, in our discussion. Um, Jude seven is in the in a context in which a list of uh, sins that God has judged are being presented. Uh, Verse 5 of Jude, now I desire to remind you even though you've been fully informed of these facts once for all that Jesus having saved uh, the people out of the land of Egypt later destroyed those who did not believe. You also know angels who did not keep their present domain but abandoned their own place of residence. He is kept in eternal change and utter darkness locked up for the judgment of the great day. That's the second sin and now we come to the Sodom and Gomorrah. So also Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighboring towns, since they indulged in sexual immorality, and pursued unnatural desire in a way similar to these angels, are now displayed as an example by suffering the punishment of of eternal fire, and uh, the the. Um, the description here is actually uh, rather generic uh, in terms of the language that's used. So, um, uh, so really, all we're doing is alluding to Sodom and Gomorrah, and basically saying, "Well, whatever was wrong and what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah, that's what God uh, judged and, and and dealt with." So, um, that was a situation when we discussed it that we said, "Well, this is actually a complicated situation. This is a forced." Uh, Forced rape situation, uh, and so it's it's not quite in the same category as as some of these other passages that we've ended yeah. up talking about. Um, Bear, yeah, I, I hate to say it, but I kind of like the um,
2: what the Queen James does here uh-huh. a little bit. Not necessarily the translation, uh, but um, I see a similarity with what Hebrews does with, mm-hmm. uh, with some of the Old Testament passages. Mm-hmm. I don't think this is necessarily a grammatical historical uh, discussion of the Genesis text mm-hmm. like you would have done, uh, but just as Hebrews notes that Abraham is uh, you know, going to offer Isaac but believes he's going to be resurrected, which you can't really get from the uh, Hebrew text very well, uh, I think here he uses just this other flesh. Uh, readers would know that these individuals were angels, mm-hmm. uh, and therefore, uh, maybe what's uh, what they were uh, looking back at was this relationship uh, where almost species crossing mm-hmm. taking place here, and I, um, I don't think, you know, the, the text
1: itself is necessarily. Always been used in uh, same-sex contexts, anyway. So this is another one we've gone through passages, and we've said, well, Genesis nine really doesn't belong in the database in in in, in this discussion. In many ways, uh, the Genesis nineteen operates on the edge because it's a, a particular kind of forced situation, and here Jude is just alluding back in a general way to that, and he's using the the the, the cross-species development is a part of the equation, so that ends up being a complicated text as well. So when we boil it all down, uh, what we end up with are um, Th- three or four central passages on this particular conversation, yeah. and that would be the Leviticus eighteen twenty-two, the Leviticus twenty thirteen, uh, the Romans one twenty-six through thirty-two, and the First Corinthians uh, nine passages. Yeah. Those are really the four texts out of the eight uh, that relate um, to this conversation in a way where. The other factors aren't so complicated that we can't know whether those texts relate to the conversation or not. Fair enough? Well gentlemen, we've uh, certainly spent some time in these texts and uh, and uh, we hope that the walk through these passages has been helpful and using the backdrop of how someone coming at it from a completely different angle would, would engage the topic has been a helpful way in to think about how to uh, talk about these passages. Um, We appreciate you all um, listening in uh, with us and listening to the passage, and we thank you for uh, being at the table with us again, and we hope to have you back soon. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.